Yes, so the reading is starting at Esther chapter 5, verse 1. Um, if you have a church Bible, it's on page 504. That's 504. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favour, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honoured him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who had guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, 
Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honour, let them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honour, and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse, and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh his wife, and told all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisers and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before, your down, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Heavenly Father, that is absolutely our prayer now, that you would stir our hearts, that you would be giving us everything that we need. We need your Holy Spirit to teach us, to provide for us the truth that we need to keep us trusting in you or to cause us to trust in you if that is something we're not doing. So please would you meet with each one of us, help us, encourage us, spur us on today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, there are only, I think, two stories ever written, two types of stories anyway, and that is comedies and tragedies. Uh, the great Mel Brooks said, tragedy is when I cut my finger. Comedy is when you fall into an open sewer. Now, that might not be a technical definition of, of the two. I think probably more would be a tragedy is a story which starts quite well. And then maybe it gets better, just to make it all the more bittersweet when it all goes wrong. Things get confused, things get ruined and then everybody dies at the end. That's the tragedy. But then there's a comedy, and, and a comedy is kind of the opposite. A comedy starts okay, and then it gets worse, and then it gets worse, and then things get confused with hilarious consequences, until things get better and better and better, and there's a happy ending. So maybe you might have a wedding, or, or if anybody dies, they definitely deserved it, uh, all's well that ends well. That's kind of a, a comedy. So I suppose the question with us, we're, we're sort of halfway through now, what sort of story is Esther? Is it a comedy? Is it a tragedy? So far it's been pretty tragic. We had uh, Xerxes, the king of the Persian Empire, deciding that he wants a new wife. 
And so the way that he decides to deal with that is rounding up hundreds of women from across the empire, working his way through them until he picks his favourite. And, and he picked a Jewish girl called Esther. Then Esther's cousin, Mordecai, he has a bust up at work. He refuses to bow to his evil boss, Haman. Haman then overreacts by deciding to kill not just Mordecai, but all of the Jews everywhere. It just gets worse and worse and worse. It really looks like a tragedy, doesn't it? Um, but the first bit of a comedy always looks like a tragedy. It, it, and this is a comedy. It's structured like this, uh, but also that it's funny. As, as, uh, as Robin was saying, this is, this is full of gallows humour, if you like. Um, but not yet. Remember last time we were left on a cliffhanger. We were left on this cliffhanger that Esther has just agreed to go before the king to plead for her people. She's going to go in to, yes, you might say, well, she's going to talk to her husband. What's the problem with that? But her husband is a nutcase. Uh, history tells us Xerxes was unpredictably violent. Just a couple of little history lessons about Xerxes. One time, he ordered a bridge to be constructed. And everything was going fine until it rained. And so Xerxes had all of the builders executed. That's what Xerxes is like. Okay? That doesn't make any sense. There was another time a man called Pythias. He gave him money to pay for a war. And all that he wanted in exchange was that his oldest son not have to fight. You can have my four other sons. They can fight. But for my cost, if you see I paid for this war, is don't let my oldest son fight. So Xerxes says, fine, takes the money and then makes sure that the boy doesn't fight in the war by chopping him in half, spreading the bits across the road and having the army march to battle through the middle. Okay, so that's what Xerxes is like. He is impulsive, he is powerful, he is terrifying and he has men with axes and spears around the door and around the throne and their orders are to kill on sight Anybody who walks anywhere near him without an invitation. And Esther is about to go and do that. Everybody's been fasting for three days. They've been holding their breath. And, and Esther's been saying bravely, hasn't she? If I perish, I perish. This is worth doing. But is she going to perish? That's sort of the cliffhanger we had last week. And here's the, the first scene this morning. The big anti-climax. The big anti-climax. It's the third day, and uh, as we know, hope always comes on the third day. And there she is. She puts on her royal robe. She's dressing like she belongs there. And in she goes into the inner court. She's completely out of bounds. And then nothing happens. Nobody comes to kill her. Nobody asks to see some ID. Instead, in verse 2, we see the king notices her, and yet again she wins his favour. He lifts up the golden scepter to beckon her in and to call off the guards. He think, wow, well either that was a fuss about nothing, or all the praying worked. Because <laughs> Xerxes is in a good mood. So he says in verse 3, chapter 5, chapter five sorry, <clears throat> verse 3, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. I mean, it's on a plate for her there, isn't it? It's your chance to ask. And so she says, if it pleases the king, yes, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet. Why? 
What are you playing at? You were supposed to be begging for people's lives, not sort of organising a date night. It's a bit of a, an anti-climax, isn't it, after all of that? But anyway, they have this feast. They're, they're at the sort of cheese and biscuits bit of it. And then everybody is now wondering what's going on. So the king says in verse 6 now, right, what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. He can see, look, what, what's going on, Esther? You didn't just risk your life so you could cook me dinner. What has this been about? And so she goes again in verse 7. My petition and my request is this. If it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet that I will prepare for him. And then I will answer the king's question. You think, what are you doing, Esther? I know a way to a man's heart is through his stomach. <laughs> but another feast, and second sort of anticlimax. It makes us think, why is she doing this? Is she chickening out? Well, no, I don't think so. I think she's being very, very canny. Remember, she hasn't been called in to see him for at least a month. And that wouldn't be because he would have been sleeping on his own. He would have been with his other women. He has a whole catalogue. So she has to get back into his good books. She has to butter him up a bit. She wants to build the suspense, make him more and more interested in what she's going to ask. He's now asking her, come on, come on, I want to give you something. She's making it harder for him to back out, isn't she? Because publicly he's saying over and over, I will grant your wish. I will grant your wish. He's sort of some kind of fairy godmother, isn't he? Going around, I will give you whatever you wish. I will give it to you. It's like she's sort of reeling in the fish slowly so that she can definitely land it. So it is a bit of an anticlimax if you got there, but it's going to get there. So we get in the next scene the big ego the big ego. There is nobody that Haman looks up to more than himself. Haman is a big deal, even if he does say so himself, which he does regularly. Uh, today is sort of Haman's best day ever, isn't it? He's had a feast with the king and the queen. He's got another one booked in for tomorrow. This is what he got into politics for, isn't it? So verse 9, it says, Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. He's heading home and he's drunk with pride he's got a song in his heart and he is just sort of swinging by the office for some reason or other and he sees Mordecai and his bubble is burst isn't it look at this Mordecai who still will not bow down to him who still won't stand up when he comes into the room who still won't show him any respect and so Haman storms off home he gathers his entourage around him and he starts to boast he thinks, right, that, I can do that. I can do boasting. And so have a look in verse 11. He, he boasts to them about his money, about his family, about his career, about his achievements. I don't know if you've sat next to somebody like this at a party or something like that. You know, that sort of person. I can remember someone who, who, who used to interrupt other people's stories and just go, no, 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 no. Listen to this to tell their story about them. Haman is that sort of person. And he brags about this banquet in verse 12. He says, I'm the only person she's invited. 
guest list of three. It's the king, the queen, and me. That's who you're dealing with. I'm a very, very big deal. But the next bit is what shows how proud he really is. He has everything, and yet he still says, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Emphasis on sitting. He doesn't stand, he doesn't bow, he doesn't give me the respect that I deserve. See, Haman has made an idol out of honour. When he has dinner at the palace, life is amazing. When he is disrespected at work, life is over. It is worth nothing to me. My sons are worth nothing to me. All my wealth is worth nothing to me. All of it is not enough. And that is what happens when we we make an idol out of anything. It will never be enough. You will never be paid enough. Your kids will never behave enough. You will never get enough attention. Nobody will thank you enough. We will be joyful when we're noticed. We will be very bitter and angry and upset when we are not. You need to watch out for this. So he, he does all this boasting. And then his, his wife, uh, Mrs. Haman, or Hey Woman perhaps, Zeresh, she, she chips in. She's sort of saying, you know, calm down, calm down. Deep breath, they're all going to be dead soon. It's okay. And he says, it's not, not soon enough. We need to do something about this now. And so she comes up with an idea in verse 14. Why not set up a pole 50 cubits high and impale him on it in the morning? And then you can go and enjoy yourself. She's a delightful lady, isn't she? <laughs> it's a big plan. It's a big plan for a big ego. So now, we don't use cubits today, but if you have a look on the footnote at the bottom, you can see that is 23 metres high. You don't need a 23-foot pole to spike somebody on it. 75-foot high spike for impaling your enemies on. And the word for pole there is more literally a tree. Go and hang him on a tree. See, the Persians are the ones who invented crucifixion. And the Romans later perfected it. They added the crossbar and the nails and things. But it was, uh, it was Haman and the Persians with this massive tree, this bigger ego, helping to develop the cross. But we end, uh, end chapter 5 with a very happy Haman. And a lot of questions. And it makes us think, doesn't it? Why has Esther done it like this? Why didn't she just come out and ask the king? She's so slow off the starting blocks that Haman has had a chance to speed up his plan. He was supposed to kill them all in about 11 months' time. And now it's all going to kick off tomorrow. And we're left with this massive point of tension of whether the whole, the, the, you know, who's going to win the race? Is it going to be the tortoise or is it going to be the hare? who eats tortoises for breakfast. So we get to scene three, the big mix-up. The big mix-up. And this is where the tragedy starts to turn around. This is where we start to get a bit of comic relief. Uh, A few years ago, there was a a man in Brazil who made a very big mix-up. His wife said, there's a possum outside the back door and asked him to get rid of it. That's one of your jobs as a husband, if we had possums in this country maybe, but you know, that kind of thing. You've got to go and get rid of this thing. So he goes out in the back door in the dark and smacks it away. 
But it wasn't a possum. It was a porcupine. <laughs> and he ended up with 400 quills in one hand. So uh, the sermon application there is don't smack porcupines, I suppose. But, but basically that is what Haman does. He goes out and he lashes out at this poor defenseless person who it turns out is not that defenseless. <laughs> he lashes out at Mordecai and ends up as a human pincushion. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. It's the night before and, and the, the, the king can't sleep. Mordecai is, uh, is fine for now. Haman is dreaming of skewering him like a kebab. The king cannot sleep though. Some have suggested that uh, it was the noise of construction that was keeping him awake. That Haman is building something in his garden. That uh, would be quite ironic. But um, when I, I don't know if you struggle to sleep ever. When I struggle to sleep, I have some of those uh, flat headphones, like a sort of band thingy, and you can listen to something boring, that sort of thing, as you're uh, nodding off. And the king goes for a very similar option. He goes to read a book, but he gets somebody else to read a book to him. And the book that he chooses is his own biography, because of course it is. He says, read me the record of my reign. Read me the adventures of me. And so they do. And that is where they discover there has been a mix-up. So have a look. Chapter 6, verse 2. It was found recorded that Mordecai had exposed Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who had guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. I don't know if we'd forgotten about that. Xerxes had certainly forgotten about it. Because for him, it wasn't just last week. It was five years ago. He'd totally forgotten about this, if he'd ever really known about it. And so he asked in verse 3, what honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this? Nothing. What a terrible mix-up. It was very important that kings reward loyalty like this. Or else people might be less careful to help you next time. So he thinks, oh my goodness, this has slipped through the net. We've got to sort this out. Have I got any of my advisors in who can help me sort this out? And Haman happens to be just outside. He's there bright and early, ready to get permission to kill Mordecai. And so he brings in Haman. He says, just the man I wanted to see. What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And Haman, typically big-headed, in the end of verse 6, who is there the king delight, would rather honor than me. It's got to be me. And so then he rattles off his absolute ultimate dream. He says, bring in royal robes that the king has worn. Bring in a, a royal horse the king has ridden. Make the horse wear a crown. And, and then parade me through the... Well, not necessarily me, whoever, whoever it might be. Uh, parade them through the streets and say, look at this guy. This is the man the king delights to honor. This is his absolute dream come true. To wear the king's clothes and drive the king's car and be king for a day. And so the king says, fantastic, let's, let's do it. Verse 10, go at once, get the robe and the horse and do just as you've suggested for Mordecai. It's brilliant, isn't it? It's so funny. This is the big mix-up. And this is the point where if there were those graphs on the board, I suppose this is where Haman, his plot sort of nosedives and Esther's skyrockets. This is the first of many reversals as Haman is forced to lead the procession celebrating his enemy. 
through gritted teeth. Give me an M. Give me an O. Give me an R. It's so, I just think this is so funny. And then the ticker tape settles. In verse 12, Mordecai just goes back to work. He's not got a big ego. He just goes, are we done? Right, I've got some stuff to get on with. He goes to work. Haman bursts into tears and runs home. And I don't know what he's hoping for. Maybe someone's going to suggest a bigger spike. But instead, listen to the advice they give him. Yesterday, they were saying, crucify him. And today, verse 13, they say, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. They can see where this is going. It's only going one way now. This downhill from here and it makes you think doesn't it what a difference a day makes what a difference what a massive mix-up this is these things that that if you'd been aware of what was going on at the time in Mordecai and Esther are totally oblivious to all of this but if you'd been aware of all this you'd be thinking everything is rattling downhill going to hell in a handbasket but no God is able to mix things up which leads to scene four, the big reveal. The big reveal. It's time for the grand finale. We didn't read this bit earlier. It's a bit too long to read all of it. So uh, here we go. So chapter six, verse 14. Uh, the chauffeur arrives, if you like. The people come to go and take him to this banquet. Esther had said, come back tomorrow for another banquet. It's time to do that. And just like yesterday, there's food and music. and It's all very nice. And it gets to that point in the evening... When the king says, Queen Esther, what is your petition? Look, come on. You didn't do all of this just so we could have a double date with Haman. What has this all been about? And so in chapter 7, verse 2, it all comes to a head. And she says to them, then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. She actually does it. She finally does it. She pleads for her people's life. And you can imagine the king's surprise. He's been asked, uh, he, he's asked her three times what she wants. And he's been prepared to give her whatever it wants. They've had these feasts to butter up. He's thinking this has got to be something really big, isn't it? Some expensive holiday or something like that. But the request is just, please don't kill me. And by putting it off and putting it off, she's made it seem like something really small in the end, something obvious and easy. Of course I'm not going to kill you. Why would I kill you? Well, that's where verse 4 comes in. She explains, For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet. Because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Again, she's being very canny and very respectful. She's saying, look, I know you're a very busy man. I, I hate to bother you. If, we, if it was just slavery, I wouldn't bother wasting your time. But we have been sold like pigs to a butcher. Sold to you, you horrible brute. She doesn't go there. She holds back. <laughs> she just says, somebody has sold us to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And if you remember, that's quoting exactly from the edict that was sent out. And the king is furious. He cannot believe it, that his queen has been sold. And so in verse 5, 
He says, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, an adversary and enemy. This vile Haman. It's great, isn't it? It's sort of the final scene in a whodunit. You get this big reveal where she reveals there has been a plot. She reveals that she's a Jew. She reveals Haman for the villain that he is. She says, the murderer is in this very drawing room. And it's, it's so tense. Verse 7, the king got up in a rage, left his wine and went out into the palace garden. He goes out for a bit of fresh air to work out what he's going to do about this. How do you punish somebody for a plan that you agreed to and sealed with your own signet ring? He's going to try and work out what he's going to do about that. Meanwhile, back in the, the other room, Haman is digging his own grave. Because according to Persian law, only the king was allowed alone with any of his wives or women. Even if there was a chaperone, you were supposed to stay seven steps away from them. And so the comedy of errors carries on. It says, Haman, realizing the king had decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banqueting hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. This is just the excuse that the king needs. And so just like that, the bag goes over Haman's head. He is now a dead man walking. And it's just dripping with irony, isn't it? The whole thing, this whole debacle began with a Jew refusing to bow to Haman. And it ends with Haman groveling at Esther's feet. His downfall is almost complete. There's just one more nail in the coffin. See verse 9. One of the servants pipes up. I don't know if you're interested to know this, but a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. It's just so convenient. It's right outside his own front door. I wouldn't have noticed if someone hadn't built it 75 feet high. It's gallows humour, isn't it? And Oh, and didn't I mention what the spike was for? It was built to murder the man who saved your life. This is real poetic justice. Haman smacked the porcupine. He threw a boomerang. And it missed and swung back and knocked him out. Chapter, uh, verse 10, they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he'd reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. It's the final sort of switcheroo. Mordecai gets the job he'd probably deserved all of those years before and Haman gets the sack over his head. Lots of times in the story we hear about how Haman tried to elevate himself and now there he is at the top of his career ladder all 75 feet of it. It is great. Every film should end like this, don't you think? You will notice, however, the story isn't finished. We have three more chapters to get through because actually it's not finished. 
But I want us to pause here. I've deliberately sort of said, let's just read the story. Let's just go through the story, get into the characters, get into the feel of it. And once we've done that, we can sort of pause and see what there is to learn. And I think the first lesson really is, is a lesson about providence, about God's sovereignty and his providence. And this comes from the structure, really, of the whole book. The book of Esther is built around eight feasts. It's built around eight feasts. We get two feasts in chapter one. So you've got the king's feast for all his soldiers, and then he has a second feast, if you remember, just for the people in Susa. Looking ahead to the end of the story in chapter nine, annual feasts are set up. One for everybody everywhere, and another one just for the Jews in Susa. So we've got this sort of pattern of two feasts like that at either end of the book. Between those feasts, we get two more. We've got Esther's wedding feast in chapter 2, and we get another feast uh, very shortly in chapter 8 when the good news comes out. Between those feasts, we've got the two feasts we looked at today. And the centre of the story is what happens between those two feasts. Now, if we were reading the story, we would say the highlight of the story is probably either Esther's boldness, saying, if I perish, I perish. But that sort of happens a bit wonky and off-center. Or the moment Haman gets caught, we'd say, oh, that's the pinnacle of the story. But that isn't where the writer of Esther is trying to get us to notice. Everything builds up to and flows out of a tiny detail in chapter 6, verse 1. That night the king could not sleep. It just seems like nothing, doesn't it? But it's the hinge the whole story turns on. If Xerxes had got a good 40 winks, none of this would have worked. He would never have read that book which began Mordecai's change of fortune. That sleepless night is what sets in motion this chain of events. And so that is where the story reaches its peak. Let me quote Karen Jobes again. I think I've quoted her every week so far. By making the pivot point an insignificant event, the author is taking the focus away from human action. Not even the most powerful person in the empire is in control of what is about to happen. An unseen power is controlling the reversal of destiny. And that's basically the message of Esther, isn't it? That this unseen power is controlling everything. When everything looks chaotic, it is God's providence that is still at work. Everything hinges on something. Haman is outsmarted by something that Esther could never have planned. It was all God. Again, in the one book of the Bible where God is not specifically mentioned. I think sometimes we can think as if God only is able to act in massive, powerful displays, like sort of strong man tearing a phone book in half. And if he doesn't do big, powerful things like that, he's not doing anything. But actually, far more often, God works subtly. He works in the background. It's more like he's sort of quietly ripping one page at a time, and then the book seems to fall apart by itself. That is far more how God works through his providence. There's an old saying, coincidences are miracles where God chooses to remain anonymous. Coincidences are miracles where God chooses to remain anonymous. I wonder if sometimes we can make a big thing about God's sovereignty and how he's 
in charge and da, da, da. but we forget actually sovereignty plays itself out normally through providence just through normal events one thing after another coincidences and things where we don't know what on earth's going on the heidelberg catechism defines providence like this i find this so helpful it says god's providence is the almighty and ever-present power of god whereby he still upholds as it were by his own hand heaven and earth together with all creatures and rules in such a way that leaves and grass rain and drought fruitful and unfruitful years food and drink health and sickness riches and poverty and everything else come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand not by chance there is no chance there is only god's fatherly hand saving the day are we able to trust god for the things going on in our lives where we cannot see what earth is going on where bad things are happening all over the place when it seems like we've reached the sort of crescendo of the story and then nothing happens because god is working his purposes out detail by detail coincidence by coincidence he will save the day and, and that leads us to the the second thing i want us to to notice a lesson about jesus this story is full of things that are just like jesus i suppose one of the most obvious is that jesus is a lot like esther that through his wisdom and his godliness he wins favor before god and then uses that to plead our case for speaking up for us just like she was jewish by birth so she could represent the jews persian by marriage so she could represent the palace jesus is god and man and so he can be that go-between there was nobody else who could have done what esther did and that was mordecai's point last week maybe you've been brought to the palace for such a time as this because there's no one else who could do that and likewise, Jesus has come into our situation as the only person who could sort it out, the only person who could plead to God on our behalf. And that's exactly what he does. He makes a way for us to enter the throne room of grace and come before God without fear. We thought about this at the prayer meeting on Tuesday night, didn't we? About the rigmarole that they've got to go through to just get an audience with her husband. And how different that is for us, because Jesus has done all of that. We can come to God without fear. Jesus is also a lot like Mordecai, facing an unjust death and then lifted up to receive honor and a royal position. And I think that the mix-up of these chapters is just a taster of where everything is going, that all history is heading for a reversal like this, a day when all of our secrets are going to be revealed, when we would face the king in his fury, a day when all of God's enemies will fall at Jesus' feet, a day when, as Haman did, it will be too late to beg for mercy. And so before that day comes, we need to bow the knee to Jesus now. We need to be like, in, in, only in this sense, like Haman's wife, who can see where this is going 
and says, okay, there is no way of standing against this man. There is a way back, though. Because unlike Haman, Haman sees people not giving him the respect that he deserves, and he is just filled with rage. Whereas when we don't give Jesus the honor that he deserves, he is still filled with compassion. And he willingly goes to death on a tree, the tree that should have been us hanging there. He willingly does that for us. And so we need to turn to the Lord Jesus today, don't we? We can trust him. Because even when everything seems like a horrible tragedy, we can trust him and know that the first bit of a comedy (laughs) always looks like that. (laughs) So we can trust him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you are the author, not only of this story, but of all history. That you are the author of our lives. And so I pray that you would help us to read the story rightly. To be able to see your hand at work. To trust you. To be able to see where the story is going. The inevitable vindication of Jesus. The inevitable salvation of his people. And so we want to turn to you today. We want to turn to you from all of our sin, from all of our plotting and scheming. We want to turn to you with all of our fears, all of our doubts, and ask that you would help us to trust you more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.